0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are excited to have two of the world's leading energy experts with us. We have Hugo Kruger, who is a structural engineer from South Africa who has worked on nuclear projects, wind projects, LNG projects all over the world. And we have Robert Bryce who uh, recently produced a film called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. He's very well published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, uh, and is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: Uh, Thank that, you for having us. That's three and a half years ago now, Marshall. Uh, I'm the host. Just you, we can identify me as the host of the Power Hungry podcast. How about that?
0: All right. Would you rather do that? Yeah, well, well, that's
1: fine. We don't. Have, you don't have to restart. That's fine. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, good.
0: I'm, we're glad to have you. Whether whether or not you're uh, uh, hosting your own podcast or not, we're just delighted <laughs> to have you here.
1: Thank you kindly.
0: <laughs> well, you know, if you live where Joel and I live, um, the world seems to be obsessed about uh, electric vehicles and lithium-ion batteries and the conversion from gas to uh, to uh, electrically driven cars. And it's the focus of everybody's conversations. But the global energy environment is changing very, very rapidly and very, very dramatically. And what is really going on out there in the world beyond electrical cars and uh, lithium-ion batteries? What are the big trends that you're seeing?
2: You go. Why don't you go first? Okay. So I, I'm I'm going to contradict you a little bit. I um. I think the big mistake we make when we talk about energy is, um, especially guys in California and Silicon Valley, is that they think that the real world changes as fast as the digital world does. So, um, you know, we, Amazon, Zoom, all these great, uh, great stuff we got in California, that changed. But if you take your kitchen from the 1950s and you compare it to the kitchen of today, day, the only difference is a microwave. We still use uh, bitumen to make roads. We still use cement to uh, build buildings and steel. Okay. Um, So if you talk about the real world, um, you know, we're still going to lay wires. We still need to build massive infrastructure and the energy sector depending on who you ask, but generally it takes about 20 years to, to really transition. If we really push for it, sometimes it can take as long as 50 years. So I'm very skeptical of the people who claim that we're in energy transition. And I'll give you a few numbers to substantiate that. The first one is that by the end of this century, if you take four out of 10 people in this world, will be African. Four out of 10 will be Asian. Uh, and if you add the rest of the two together, it's North America, South America, and Europe, and the Australians become a rounding error. That is what a population is. So if you look at Asia and Africa's population, um, if we talk about energy and we talk about carbon emissions, if you don't talk about them, you're just not serious. Um, As I said to somebody this week on a podcast, Europe and North America can fall into the ocean tomorrow. It makes absolutely no difference to the temperature of the earth. Um, So, you know, you need to convince mainly the Africans who are now urbanizing that, look, uh, if you want a certain type of energy system, they have to be convinced of it. And they, I am highly skeptical of the people who say that we are pushing through an energy transition. The uh, 2015, the uh, head of the African Development Bank made an extraordinary quote where he said, Africa is basically going to use coal and oil. We've got it under our feet. Um, there's no need not to use it. Of course, we have sun. We don't have a lot of hydro um, or potential for hydro. We've got a little bit of wind. You know, we can use these things, fine. But the bulk of the energy demand, in my view, is still going to come from your traditional sources. I know it's a tough pill to swallow. I know it's heresy in New York and California. Um, but that is, unfortunately, what I'm seeing. Um, yeah. We'll let it Robert, look. what are Maybe- you seeing?
1: I'll agree largely with with what uh, Hugo said. In fact, I'm just looking at uh, a price chart here for <clears throat> Australian coal, it's the the Newcastle marker uh, for coal and the price of, of, you know, we talk about the rise in oil and natural gas prices globally over the last year or so, they've gone up doubled or tripled. Well, the price of coal from the Newcastle port is up seven x It's now selling for $350 a ton where it was selling for $50 a ton at the beginning of 2020. So What we're seeing around the world and it's not solely because of course this russia ukraine conflict or russia's invasion of ukraine it is uh the recovery from covid and economic growth is driving a recarbonization you know there's all this talk about decarbonization and the rest of it i don't see it in fact i'll I'll echo what, what hugo said i had a piece in quillette Just a couple of weeks ago talking about this very fact that there that for all the hype about the energy transition the numbers do not reflect anything like that in fact renewables are not even keeping pace with the growth in in hydrocarbon growth and that's true in the united states true in china true true around the world that the need for or the consumption of coal, oil, and natural gas is far outstripping the growth in in wind and solar, and it's really not even close. So those are the macro trends, and I think more immediately here in the United States we're seeing a, f- a shortage of diesel fuel and few diesel fuel prices going up, which is simply a reflection of. This imbalance uh, in 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 supply and demand, and the fact that we've shuttered some refineries, Russia has gone out of the market for uh, imported uh, in in refined products into the U.S. and uh, and, and increased demand. So, yeah, I agree almost with everything Hugo said just now. We're we're the the age of hydrocarbons is not over by any means. Nuclear is showing signs of life, but it's going to take a long time for nuclear to make a big dent in hydrocarbon demand.
3: Well, um. What you're saying, of course, is is heresy in the EU and the U.S. EPA and California. Um, what do you think is going to drive any change in this? I mean, California seems to be determined to increase electricity use without increasing the amount of, of juice that we have in the system. What is it going to take to change these things? Or will the developing countries just go off on their own? And and tell the West to go, you know, screw itself, basically.
2: Um, I'll start there by saying let's, let's take a step back and look at the energy system. And people always, uh, what can frustrate me about the media is they can confuse energy generation, power, yeah. electricity. These things have, you know, distinct meanings in physics. Um, if you look at the total energy use in the United States, this includes now transportation. It's not electricity. I'm talking about all the energy. About two-thirds of that energy is lost through heat. In the system. Okay. If you generate energy through a steam turbine, um, two thirds of energy is lost and then you can take the rest to your house. And that's where the rest of the consumption takes place. However, transportation, petrol cars, for example, if I say gas, gasoline, um, they also lose about two thirds. You know, some people say 60% depends on the age of the car. Um, So let's ask ourselves, what fuel will give us the advantage to bypass that, to not generate electricity? And here I am very bullish on natural gas, for example, Natural gas has the main advantage, and we underappreciate the, the main advantage of it. It's dispatchable. You can take gas from where you take it to, uh, you know, basically put it on a car or a truck. Of course, it has to be liquefied, transported, and use that source. And the lossage in a natural gas system is only 9% compared to two thirds. So that's already a major advantage. And any product that competes against natural gas has to have the characteristics that it has to be more dispatchable. There's some argument to make that solar and wind can do so, but that's only for when the sun shines and the wind blows. Um, the uh, other than that, I don't see how you get beyond that. Um, so you need to come up with a product that can either replace that, or you need to come up with a system that can change that fact. And that, to me, I, when I look at the just the, the amount of skills necessary, just the amount of resources to change such a system. I find it highly, uh, I'm highly skeptical. So I'm saying I'm very bullish on natural gas. I think if there's gonna be a renaissance, it's going to be natural gas.
3: Yeah, I, I just wanna just a quick follow up and uh, I'd like to ask Robert about it, which is, I remember, I'm not so old that I don't remember five years ago, even 10 years ago, people like Michael Bloomberg and Barack Obama and you know others were saying, yes, natural gas is part of the equation. Now here in California, Natural gas is being treated as if it's, you know, the devil's spawn. Um, What happened? What happened politically, Robert, that moved us from President Obama's, you know, idea of all of the above to, you know, basically wind and solar and everything else is screwed?
1: Well, first, I'll, I'll echo Hugo's points. And I think, and it's a point that I've been making now for over a dozen years. In fact, I was just looking at my, well, I'm not bragging here, but a book I wrote 12 years ago called Power Hungry in which I talked about natural gas and nuclear and that this is the way forward. And I think that it's already this internationalization of the the LNG trade has happened with remarkable speed, really. And in really the last five years or so, it's gone from effectively zero in the United States now to the U.S. being the world's dominant LNG exporter, which has been incredibly important when it comes to Europe and trying to replace some of the gas that used to come from Russia. So I think the macro trends are absolutely in line with what Hugo is saying in that natural gas deposits globally – are very widespread they're diverse um you saw the israelis and the lebanese and an incredibly agreed on a deal that will allow uh the the exploitation of a gas field in the mediterranean that's in waters that are claimed by both countries so there is there are a lot of things happening <clears throat> around the world and there's a lot of stranded natural gas in the world so i agree with him completely in that that trend toward gas is going to be ongoing for decades to come as far as here in the u.s uh, joel to answer your question very directly it, it, the, the way that gas has been demonized in the U.S. is a function of <clears throat> massive amounts, and I do mean hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent, to use your word, the oligarchs, the billionaires, the, and Michael Bloomberg, Lorraine <clears throat> Powell Jobs, um, uh, John Doer supporting uh, Jeff Bezos, giving hundreds of millions of dollars to groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, Sierra Club, the Building Decarbonization Coalition, other groups that are ardently anti-gas. And they have they've convinced a lot of people in the media, a lot of reporters to, you know, echo this claim that, oh, gas is dangerous, that it's going to cause health problems in your home and that we should fully electrify everything, including all home heating. And 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 it, it, so the, this demonization of gas has really been accelerated in the last I would say the last two years. Uh, but it's due to a, I think, a very well-funded and very well-coordinated media campaign that's being conducted by some of the biggest NGOs in the world, and they are being funded by some of the richest people in America.
0: Well, you know, th- th- speaking of funding, I want to hearken back to uh, what Hugo said initially, which is that there's a implicit, you know, uh, feeling in the United States that comes out of Silicon Valley that we can turn on a dime and completely redo our infrastructure in the non-digital world. And um, I don't think people have an appreciation for the capital expenditures that are required to be able to make any shift, whether it's to renewables or even to, for instance, uh, LNG plants and and terminals. Give us a sense of that. I mean, what, what kind of time scales are we talking about? And what kind of money scales are we talking about? To move the meter one way or the other.
2: Okay, so I, I spoke to um, Noam Chomsky on this, who wrote The New Green Deal and the, it's the Industrial Economy with Robin Pollan. And I messaged Robin Pollan as well, who um, is in favor of the Green New Deal. It's sort of one of the brainchilds at MIT behind it. And the numbers in their own book, okay, I'm not citing their numbers, comes down to essentially the money the US spent for the wars on terror. Um, you know, you, you're running into the trillions of dollars yeah. And they believe we should do it. They believe we need to be on the war footing. This is what the people who advocate this say, right? They say we need wartime mobilization to, quote unquote, save the planet. Now, whatever one thinks of global warming and all these things, that is the debate that we need to have democratically. Is that worth it? Is it worth the trade-off? Now, I'm willing to say that a lot of things that the Green New Deal proponents say, I actually am in favor of. So, for example, insulating people's homes makes complete sense to me why people shouldn't die of the cold in the winter. Of course, it's a question of cost involved. Um, it looks something like heat pumps, for example. They are 300% efficient, but if you get two thirds of, you lose two thirds of your electricity in heat. They come down to the same as natural gas. So if you run a heat pump of natural gas, yeah, you've got an efficient product. But if you if you run it off the electricity generated by coal, you don't have one. So some of the stuff they propose, they're in that back edge called green proponents, green advocacy stuff, even solar and wind. I'm in favor of them where they make sense. They're very good in desalination of seawater, for example. They've got some applications. There is some things that make sense to me. Um, my question is a question of time. And here we always need to keep the other balance in the equation, which is you don't want to impoverish people with your, uh, your solutions. Any um, engineer with his salt would have been trained in saying that your solutions need to be socially acceptable. It is highly Unacceptable to me to say we're going to take solar panels, we're going to manufacture them in China on their questionable labor practices, and then we're going to you know chase out US gas workers, for example, or um, France or the UK. That to me makes absolutely no sense. Um, if we're going to move those factories back home and we're going to manufacture some of them and they happen to beat natural gas at its own game, I don't think any of us will oppose it. So to me, the question of spending that lump sum of money, I think is ridiculous. If you spend it over 20, 30 years' time and we decarbonize the energy system slowly, I think none of us can oppose it. And then also the other other elephant in the room here is nuclear power. Uh, nuclear power, the most expensive power plant in the UK, which you should not, that's the way not to do it, I think is $20 billion, more or less what it comes down to. That's three weeks of military spending in Afghanistan. You know, So people who make the argument that even nuclear is expensive, even the example of what you should not do, comes out laced in the amount of money we've spent on military spending. So, you know, that opens, that that makes nuclear sort of more attractive if you look at it through that lens.
1: Well, I'll, I'll chime in with just a couple of quick figures. I found it, I've, I've cited this several times, but in 2019, Wood McKinsey, which is one of the best known of the global energy consulting firms, estimated that to decarbonize the U.S. electric grid we're just talking about electricity, not industry, not transportation, would cost four and a half trillion dollars. So, uh, over time, they're talking, this is something like $30,000 per US household. So, I mean, if you put that to a vote, and, and, and the people are going to say, well, hell no, we're not going to do that. Um, but I think that, you know, going back to Hugo's points, I, which, with, with which I agree, uh, there are constraints on the system. And I think that that's one of the big problems that <clears throat> we ha- we face when we talk about energy policy and, oh, we're just going to switch to something else. No, we're not, because these systems change very slowly. As uh, Vaclav Smil said, that these energy transitions happen over decades. And so all this claptrap that we're hearing now about the energy transition and, oh, we need to c- switch to something else because of climate change, not only does it ignore the scale of the system, which is just staggeringly large. Um, but also, uh, it ignores the global reality of what is happening. And I'll just mention one other quick point was since I mentioned coal before, a, a, it was in August, a report came out and it was from the left of center think tanks pointing out that China is now building still about one coal fired power plant a week. And that, you know, you, you thought that was an old number. Oh, that was years ago. No, that's still today. This is still happening. So this idea that we're, we're seeing some kind of broad energy transition and that the US can lead the way and that other countries are going to follow the US just flat wrong
0: yeah uh, By the way, I, before we before we leave this point i'm not hearing the word hydrogen does that God, have any role in yeah <laughs> what, what's I, the story I, with what's the story with hydrogen
2: let, let, let agent, me explain the agent
1: the uh, hydrogen stands for hype marshall
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I i will explain hydrogen this way um first of all hydrogen is a secondary fuel it's not the primary field um, You need energy to make hydrogen. Hydrogen is not found in nature. Now, they've come in different colors. I kept lost track of the colors, but they have pink and gray and green. Now, everyone wants the green hydrogen. That's if you put electrolysis, the high school experiments of rods in the water, and we have hydrogen. That loses 25%. Uh, that's 25% efficiency, efficiency under ideal conditions. So if you're 100 megawatts, you have 25 megawatts, theoretically, of hydrogen. They need to transport it. Right, They need to burn it. So there was a, a French astronomist by the name of Michael, Michael Coriat, who did a calculation on this, and he came out with a calculation just to power Charles de Gaulle Airport, which is the same size as JFK for the US. Um, you need 16 nuclear reactors for an airport. If we double efficiency, we might get eight nuclear reactors. If we quadruple it, we might get two nuclear reactors. Do you need two nuclear reactors just to run the airplanes on the airport? So hydrogen has got a major disadvantage um, just in energy need. Then it's got another disadvantage in volume, the amount of energy per volume. It's got one third the capability of methane. So translate that is if you have a truck that runs on hydrogen as opposed to methane, you can have two choices, one third of the cargo or one third of the distance. You can't have both. Um, so that's an enormous disadvantage. There is an advantage, there's an application for it in industrial feedstock. You can theoretically use it to. Um, decarbonize the steel industry. So when we make steel, it's iron plus coal, and then we add additional coal just for energy. That additional coal, you can get rid of it. The same can work for for cement. There's an application for it. Another application for it is the desalination of seawater at small towns, for example. They've got lots of solar, usually in isolated towns. You can um, theoretically have a water source next to it. You can make a tank through of hydrogen to store the solar in the off-season, and hydrogen makes sense if you don't have to transport it. Okay, that tank can be as big as you want it. Theoretically, that's a way to do it, and then you can recover, recover some of the uh, the inland water. There's an application for it. Of course, some someone else asked me the question, why don't you just put up a nuclear plant to run the desalination plant? I don't have an answer for that. But you know, theoretically, there's an application for it um, in terms of transport, short distance only. Uh, there's no ways you're gonna meet the haulage that American Africa's got. We have massive distances um, to transport. The only thing that makes sense for me for that is natural gas. Not even electrical batteries come close to the capability of it. And again, you know, I argue these things not because I'm a shell for the fossil fuel industry. At the moment, I'm working on offshore wind farms. It's just inherent physics. And the the physics, I never see that as part of the of the argument here. The physics of whatever energy source you have puts a restraint on the system. And you can't get away from that.
1: Yeah, a, a, agreed. Uh, I've done the calculations many times. My my calculations on hydrogen, it's one and a half units in for of of energy in for one unit of energy out in the form of hydrogen, and that's just a net loser. Why would you do that? And these ideas are that you're going to use renewables to electrolyze water. Well, wait a minute. Then you're going to run your system at twenty five percent capacity factor. It's crazy town. I mean, it's just too expensive. And then you end up with a molecule that's very small, very, very hard to tank. Uh, very needs a special seals. Oh, and then you're going to put it in your fuel cell. Well, I'm 62 years old in my life. I've seen three fuel cells when it where's the fuel cell, you know, so uh, there are all these issues that are around this, but there's a lot of government money behind hydrogen. But, uh, you know, the hype, I've I've seen the hype. I've heard the hype for 30 years. I, I know I still don't believe it.
3: Joel, you're muted. So um, right. unmute yourself. there we go. All right. Um, I don't know what I, what I, I'm sorry, I did that. Um, One of the things that I, I wonder about, and and I just would like to sort of round towards uh, the end of this, because the social impact, I mean, I, you know, Jen, like Jennifer Hernandez was saying that, that the, the now the HHS secretary who was uh, attorney general, basically thought the c- climate policies were having these negative effects. It didn't even matter. It wasn't even something we thought about. We don't think about what the what the impact of you know a uh, net zero by twenty forty five would mean for poor people and for poor countries is this issue um, beginning to be aired more or um, has the media focus just completely ignored the social implications? Because it seems to me you're not going to sell a climate change policy if people think it's going to make their lives much worse.
1: Well, I'll I'll jump in first and I'll point out, Joel, you know, I like this question, but you've been one of the leaders in in pointing this out and underscoring it. And I've followed your lead. And uh, in my view, nearly all of these climate policies are in one way or another regressive, right, whether it's banning internal combustion engine vehicles and potentially forcing uh, consumers to buy an electric vehicle. Well, I live in texas i see i'm in rural areas i go travel a lot i don't see farmers ranchers working class people driving electric vehicles they're they're vehicles for the wealthy but more I'll and with this one quick point which is something that is in in place in california now just uh, the california air resources board just passed a regulation that will prohibit the sale of natural gas fired heaters uh furnaces water heaters and cooks t- and cooktops uh, beginning in 2030. This is a regressive tax. Why? Because natural gas costs on a per BTU basis about a quarter of much as, as electricity. So you're forcing consumers to use a more expensive form of energy. Well, that's regressive out of the gate. And you can say, Oh, well, the heat pumps more efficient. Okay, fine. Maybe it is heat pumps suck. I've lived in houses with heat pumps, they stink. And I don't want a heat pump. I want a furnace. I want something that's reliable. And as Jen you, you mentioned Jennifer Hernandez, Joel, and I'll stop. with this you know i talked with her about this and she said well this denial of the use of natural gas then for consumers this is the last form of in affordable in-home electricity and i think that that is exactly right and from a climate standpoint much better to use that natural gas directly in the home direct combustion than indirect combustion through the power plant so i think there is a very much a class issue here and it is underreported because it doesn't fit the narrative and the 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 media class the 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 clericy, as you call them Joel this is not this is an inconvenient fact for them and they don't want to talk about it because it blows up this idea that oh of climate justice and the rest of it
2: um, i want to add another one here um I mean, Joel asked about the media. Now, fortunately, the South African media is far more sanguine on this question, and so, is, so are the think tanks, um, because we need to develop. All of Africa needs to develop. So they've looked at this entire issue, and the language in Africa at the moment is that this is a form of neocolonialism. To tell the Africans that they cannot develop their own economies, which is essentially what this message translates to, is skeleton and insensitive. And again, if the U.S. is not going to be there, the Chinese are stepping in. They say, oh, lovely, we have a scramble of Africa for Africa without competition at the moment. And that is the geopolitics of this. So this is real politics. This is not, uh, you know, fantasy stuff. Um, you know, in terms of, of social impacts here, I mean, we saw in France, I was in 2018 when we had the Gilesion riot. They said the elite, um, what's it, the elite? So the elite speak of the end of the world when we speak of the end of the month. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was basically the quote that was going around over here. So yeah. I, I'm willing to take a thousand dollar bet and nobody's taken me up against this yet, that the green elite will be dislodged from power long before we get to net zero. That is my bet. And nobody, not even the climate alarmers have taken that bet up against me. Um, we saw in one year um, the government in Estonia, the government in the UK, they've been ousted twice from power. You know, um, we, we're seeing major changes in the U.S. I don't know what's going to happen with your, your next election. Sri Lanka. Yeah, Sri Lanka is yes. something between a coup d'etat and a, <laughs> a, a right. climate coup d'etat, if you can call it that way. <laughs> but even throughout Africa, you know, there's, um, uh, South Africa's uh, minister, Gwedi Mantashi, minister of energy, said he, a few weeks ago, he said, why should we do what, energy, what Germany is doing? South Africa has a lot of coal. We produce our own petrol from coal that we haven't even talked about yet. One of the few countries to do so. Why should we get rid of the only industry that we're competitive in? and why should we um you know try and beg to vladimir putin for gas that was essentially what he said you know uh, so everyone is looking at this europe thing and this is especially from the global south countries and they're saying guys you're crazy this is nuts um and and again if you look worldwide the only people who care about this issue is all of europe and half of america the, the rest of the world has got frankly better things to worry about
0: well and the I reason why that's... they think... the reason why they care about this is that they put the debate in the context of an existential threat to the climate and to the, to the planet. And, you know, th- this is a religious question. It's not a, it's not a, a, a scientific question in many respects because people have these ingrained beliefs, but the, one of the elements of the conversation that we've not really talked about, and I'd love to get your thoughts on is the, the whole water side of this and the implications of the scarcity or the, you know, Rebalancing of the water supply of the world and how it fits with the uh, with the um, uh, overall yeah, energy yeah. picture. What, what do you guys think about that?
2: So, so one um, revolution that is taking place at the moment is desalination of seawater. Um, uh, again, the environmentalists don't like it, but the long story short is the ocean is a natural desalination. Salt does not evaporate, right? So we're just doing what nature is doing, if accelerating it. Um, The leaders in this in the world are the Israelis, the Saudis. I see Iran is now looking into desalination because they were almost running out of water. And, um, there's a very good argument to make that if you can desalinate seawater in countries that are climate stressed, now, now climate stressed, I mean, you know, competitive over water, uh, it can bring peace and prosperity to those regions. So, for example, after Israel solved its water problem, it could withdraw some of its troops from the Jordan River because that river was always geopolitically contentious. Uh, we saw a peace deal between, I think it was Israel and and, um, what is it? Saudi Arabia and uh, Dubai. Um, I think it's last year. That's after those countries manage to, you know, manage their own water resources. There's a geopolitical standoff between Egypt and Ethiopia. And a lot of Egyptians are saying, maybe we should go for desalination and then we don't need to draw all the water from the Nile, for example. So that is going to play into it. Desalination is energy intensive. And here it becomes a very good argument for nuclear power. Because nuclear, um, if you put it through a steam turbine, you lose that two thirds energy. But if you extract the heat directly through thorium and through other types of nuclear, you can uh, make it more efficient. And the Saudis are now recycling their seawater for cheaper than South Africa is doing its own river water. Right? Right. They've managed to get the cost down through high energy intensivity. So to me, that is the major uh, game changer that we're going to see geopolitically. Melbourne and Australia were leading on this for some years. They have managed to recover the inland water as well. They're doing something similar. I'm not sure how they powered the desalination yet. Some of them are using uh, solar panels as well, but either way, that is, the, 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 you cannot, I mean, I've made an argument for some time now that you need to look at the energy problem in conjunction of the water problem as well. They sort of feed into each other.
1: I'll, I'll agree very quickly and, I, uh, there, and, and echo Hugo's point that the energy intensity of desalination is very high, right? So you're going to have to have a power plant co-located with whatever desalination project you have. Um, and that is a good uh, uh, use for nuclear. I was in Washington D.C. Uh, just a quick uh, point on that. I was at in, in industry meetings from the nuclear energy industry, the Nuclear Energy Institute, and the International Atomic Energy Agency. There's a lot of optimism around new nuclear, but there are still several supply chain problems that have to be resolved, including the fuel issue, right? Because 25% of the fuel that U.S. nuclear reactors use comes right now from Russia, and so these these different hurdles are going to have to be addressed. But I'll I'll end with this point, which is that I think the bottom line to me, you know, Marshall, you kind of opened it up about well, what's the situation globally, I think that this, the the energy crisis, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made energy security top of mind and energy security is always going to trump climate concerns. And it always has always will. I call it the iron law of of electricity. Uh, uh, Roger Pilkey Jr calls it the iron law of climate when forced to choose between uh, economic growth and climate action, people always choose economic growth. And I think that that's clearly what we're seeing now in this bro- broadly around the world.
0: Well, Robert Bryce and Hugo Kruger, thank you so much for giving us your thoughts on the global situation for energy, for water. And uh, we're delighted to have have you as guests and hope that you'll come back and visit us again on the Feudal Future podcast.
3: Now, I don't think this issue is going away. <laughs>
1: No, I'd be glad. Well, look, there's well, there's plenty more we could talk for another couple of hours, I'm certain. And, uh, you know, great conversation and always happy to uh, talk with you all. Thanks. Well, thank guys. you. Thank you both gentlemen. I enjoyed this. Thank one. you. So, bye bye.